Let's open our precious Bibles to Micah chapter 6. The minor prophet of Micah, who prophesied in the days of several kings, warning Israel and Judah that they had better repent, or God was going to send desolation upon both nations, and they didn't repent, and God kept his word by this prophet. What doth the Lord require of us? We'll answer that in this chapter. This is an elegant chapter in the Bible. It's relatively easy to understand. It's weighty in how God pleads his controversy with Israel and Judah. It begins by God appealing to the mercy that he had shown that nation and asking them, Was not my mercy enough to elicit your obedience? Why are you weary of serving me? Then he tells them by the prophet what the Lord expects from them. And then he tells them because they're living wickedly and contrary to his word, he is going to destroy them miserably. So it starts with the positive, it ends with the negative, and all of it because they didn't want to humble themselves before God their creator and God their savior, the father of Israel. And let these elegant words come to us and convict us today. We have studied Romans 8, the last 12 verses for the last two weeks. In those 12 verses, we have some wonderful words. We have the promises and guarantees of God through Jesus Christ for our souls in this world and in the world to come. Wonderful words. We delight in Romans 8. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect for his mercy? Endureth forever. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? For his mercy endureth forever. We had wonderful words of God's mercy in those 12 verses. And the apostle would appeal to them in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12. That in light of those mercies we ought to live for him. The mercies of God should bring us to devoted lives. If we're not living devoted lives for him. Either we're not born again. A likely chance, a likely prospect, or we have forgotten the mercies of God. And so we want to remember them, and the Lord stirred up Israel to remember them by his prophet Micah. This is a simple but profound chapter, and I hope that it will be a blessing to you as we try to make it very easily understood and practical for your lives. Micah prophesied just before... Israel was taken captive by Shalmaneser, king of the Assyrians. That occurred during the reign of Hezekiah and Ahaz. And Micah prophesied just before that took place. It would be a little while later, a number of years and a number of kings, before Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonians would come and take Judah captive. But this is when Micah prophesies, and the first chapter tells us that, because it tells us during the reign of which, which kings of Judah that he was preaching. A simple outline of the chapter. Verses 1 through 5, God explains his controversy with Israel and pleads his case against them. Verses 6 through 9, what does God require in order to please him? Verses 10 through 15, God continues his pleading by pointing out the injustice that they had in that nation toward one another. And then the 16th verse is the idolatry that they were perpetuating 
by holding to pagan traditions received from Israel, two of Israel's kings. That's the short outline of the chapter. Let's take up with verse 1, and I'll read the first section to you, which is verses 1 through 5. Hear ye now what the Lord saith. Arise, contend thou before the mountains, and let the hills hear thy voice. Hear ye, O mountains, the Lord's controversy, and ye strong foundations of the earth. For the Lord hath a controversy with his people, and he will plead with Israel. O my people, what have I done unto thee? And wherein have I wearied thee? Testify against me. For I brought thee up out of the land of Egypt, and redeemed thee out of the house of servants. And I sent before thee Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, consulted, and what Balaam the son of Beor answered him from Shittim unto Gilgal, that ye may know the righteousness of the Lord. The Lord is righteous, and he had proved his righteousness in coming to plead against that nation because of two events he brought up, and that was the deliverance of them out of the house of bondage in Egypt and of overthrowing the council of Balaam to Balak. He, he brings up those two events, one verse for each, and says, I'm righteous because look what I've done for you. Why are you wearied of serving me? Verse 1 of chapter 6. Hear ye now what the Lord saith. These are not the words of Jonathan Crosby, nor are they the words of Micah the prophet. These are the words of the Lord God of heaven. Hear ye now what the Lord saith. The Lord Jehovah. I am that I am. He had the controversy. Micah was nothing but a mouthpiece. Micah was nothing but a secretary. To speak and to write the words of God. So the first thing we want to do when we approach the Word of God, and it's something we ought to do with great sincerity and seriousness and sobriety, these are God's words. These are God's words to us. We come into the house of God to meet God. God is not a big, puffy piece of cotton candy. This is God. He is speaking to us today from His Word out of Micah chapter 6. Hear ye now what the Lord saith. These are the words of God. And the first words in verse 1 are to the prophet Micah. Arise, get up and get to work as a minister, and contend thou before the mountains, and let the hills hear thy voice. You make it very public in what I'm giving to you, so that all of Israel hears it. You blast the nation for their sins. So similar to Isaiah 58 where it says, Cry aloud, lift up thy voice like a trumpet, and show my people their sins and iniquities. And so God charges Micah the prophet to do that here with Israel and with Judah. A public proclamation showing people their sins, not because the minister's mind is in a controversy against them, though that does happen, it's because the Lord has a controversy, as verse 2 will tell us. And let's go to verse 2. 
More could be said on each verse, but I don't want to cause you to lose your focus of the chapter because we're going to come back to chapter, we're going to come back to verse 8 and see if we can't make it rather practical for you today before we leave God's Word. Verse 2. Now the prophet is speaking on behalf of God. Hear ye, O mountains. The Lord's told him to charge Israel in face of the mountains. So he's speaking. Hear ye, O mountains, the Lord's controversy, and ye strong foundations of the earth. For the Lord hath a controversy with his people, and he will plead with Israel. This is the prophet addressing them. And he's calling the foundations of the earth and the mountains as witnesses to his message. Throughout the Bible, we have the words, I call heaven and earth as witnesses to God's word against his people. That's a common expression in the Bible. And here the prophet is telling the mountains to hear because he's making it public. And the foundations of the earth to hear it. Because he's declaring that the Lord has a controversy. A controversy is when there's a difference between two parties. And there's a difference between God and his people Israel. We are not dealing with the Philistines. We're not dealing with the Amalekites. What did the Lord say about the Amalekites? That he had indignation against Amalek for how long? Forever. Lord God, thank you for your mercy. Do you understand I've just used the word forever in two different senses? The Lord hath an indignation against Amalek forever. For his mercy endureth forever. What a difference God makes with his mercy. Amen. What side of that mercy are you on? Praise the Lord. I know what side I'm on. I know what side most of you are on. Are you thankful for that mercy? Amen. We're dealing with his people. The Lord has a controversy with his people. The Lord shall judge his people. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 30. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hebrews 10:31, And those verses are describing his dealings with his people. The Lord's got a controversy. He has a difference with Israel. And he is going to plead his case. He is going to come and argue his case. And brethren, our God is logical and rational and reasoning, and he loves to reason because he knows that all honest reasoning will result in him being vindicated. I love a reasonable religion, one that you can reason through, like reasoning through the theorems and axioms of mathematics or geometry. You can reason through the Word of God and through God's dealings with you and know that there is a God in heaven. He has a Godhead and he has eternal power. And He is the one that fills our hearts with fruitful seasons and gladness. It is because the heart of man is wicked that in the face of pure rationality and reason, he rejects God. Men do not reject God because they're not smart enough to figure out that He's there. Total depravity is not the reduction of brain power. Total depravity is the corruption of our hearts so that our brain is exercised in the wrong direction. Because we refuse to submit to the God of heaven by nature. He has a controversy. And the Lord is reasonable and rational. And it's wonderful to see him reason in the scriptures with his people. He says, bring forth your strong reasons. Isaiah 41, 21. One of my favorite passages. Bring your best. Come and 
Come, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Isaiah 1.18. You bring your best reasons, I'll bring mine, and we'll see who wins. We'll see if I deserve a little bit of affection and attention from you people. Now, Job, the Lord left Job alone for a few chapters, and Job said, Come on down here. Come on down and let's reason together. But do you know what Job said in Job 40 verses 1 through 5 and 42, 1 through 6? I should not have spoken. I was foolish. My ears had heard of thee, but now mine eye seeth thee. I repent in dust and ashes. Job admitted in chapter 40 and 42 that all that had happened to him was incredibly fair. And for him to have spoken against God was unreasonable. I love that about the great God we worship. Everything he has done is rational and reasonable and can be proven out. But without being born again, a man's mind will refuse to do it. He will not recognize the good things he has in his life. And this beautiful, magnificent, infinite creation nearly infinite creation was not made by chance. He can't reason that out. He doesn't want to. He refuses to because he doesn't want a personal God that requires anything of him. That is total depravity. Total depravity doesn't mean men are so dumb they can't figure it out. They figure it out. Romans chapter 1 tells us they figured it out very well, but they refused to give him the glory that he deserved as creator, and they made images to reflect him like unto the creation so they wouldn't have a God dictating the terms of their lives. Anyway, back to this controversy. The Lord's very reasonable. Look at, please turn to, one of the few passages I want to turn away from Micah 6 is to go to Isaiah 5 for just a minute. Isaiah 5, and let's see his reasoning there because it is so similar to the prophecy of Micah. And these two men, these two prophets were contemporaries. They were preaching at the same time. Because when King Hezekiah was about to die, who was sent to him to tell him he had 15 more years? The prophet Isaiah. And the first chapter of Micah tells us when Micah was prophesying. Isaiah chapter 5, let me read to you the first few verses. Just through verse 4. Isaiah 5, 1 through 4. Now will I sing to my well-beloved a song... Of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. And he fenced it, and gathered out the stones thereof, and planted it with the choicest vine, and built a tower in the midst of it, and also made a winepress therein. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes, and it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard. What could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes. This is the Lord pleading his case against Judah by the prophet Isaiah. And he goes on to explain in verse 7, that the vineyard is the nation of Judah and Israel. And he looked for judgment and he looked for righteousness, but what he found was oppression and crying oppressed poor people. 
The Lord asks, what more could I have done for my vineyard that I didn't do? What more could I have done? Now, that's the positive part. The Lord comes to us and asks, I've done so much for you. And we will sing this song today, the Lord willing. I gave my life for you. What hast thou done for me? And he reasons that way with Judah and Israel. Look at all that I've done for you. I took a a very nice hill, a very fruitful hill. I fenced it about so that nothing could hurt it. I I found the choicest vine to plant there. I put a wine press in this place. I designed the perfect vineyard for wine. And when I went to pick the grapes from this perfect vineyard, I didn't find cultured grapes ready to make a great vintage of wine. I found wild grapes. What more could I have done for this vineyard? That's what he says to us today. That's what he says to you. What more could he have done for you? He has done so much for every single one of us. I know of one young lady in here that I asked to make a list when she was 12 years old. To make a list of all the reasons why she was the most blessed 12-year-old in the whole world. And you know what? Any one of you could do that. Anyone can do that. Sit down and list all the blessings that you have and put yourself in a very small company of those that are very blessed. What more could the Lord have done? What more did he need to do to get your attention? Let's come back to Micah chapter 6. That's how the Lord reasons. I made a, That vineyard was Judah and Israel. He made a perfect vineyard on a fruitful hill. He put the choicest vine there. He fenced it about. He kept them in on every side. He protected them from their enemies. He blessed them abundantly by giving them so much prosperity. And yet they got, he got wild grapes. And what does he mean by wild grapes? Instead of a pure, perfect, righteous life, he gets your disobedient, wicked life. Instead of, instead of words of praise coming out of your lips, he gets words of, of harm, sarcasm, jesting, folly, filthiness. And on and on we could go. The Lord gets wild grapes instead of the grapes that he intended to get from all of his blessing. Back to Micah chapter 6. And so we have verse 3. Oh, my people. What an appeal by the God of heaven. Oh, my people, what have I done unto thee? And wherein have I wearied thee? Testify against me. If I've done something wrong to offend you, if I've done something wrong to make my worship and my religion onerous, difficult, expensive, a pain, testify against me. Tell me what I've done wrong. O my people, what have I done to thee, and wherein have I wearied thee? If you're bored this morning, I can't help it that I don't, that I can't speak any better. I can't help it. But I don't really care. Because if you come wanting to hear the words of God, we're going to give you the words of God, even though it doesn't come out in a very pleasant voice or a very pleasant organization. Doesn't matter. If you come with your heart right, then you love and want to hear the words of God. But if you're bored this morning, the Lord wants to ask you a question. He's asking you. This is not me asking you. This is not Micah asking you. This is God asking you. Wherein have I wearied thee? What have I done that wearies you about my worship? What have I done unto thee? Testify against me. Tell me what I've done wrong. Tell me what I've done that's caused you to be bored this morning. 
Tell me what's causing you to doze this morning. Tell me what's causing you to think about the stupid things of your life this morning. Because everything in your life is stupid compared to me. What are you thinking about this morning beside me? What have I done? Wherein have I offended you that you count other things more important than me and my worship? This is the God of heaven asking us. If you're bored or dozing, then confess it because it's a sin. It's because you're lazy and slothful and wicked. And the Lord's got a controversy with you and the Lord will plead his case and the Lord wins all his cases. Oh, my people, what have I done unto thee, and wherein have I wearied thee? Testify against me. He brings up two events in their lives of blessing. We have far more. You are so blessed above anyone that ever lived in the nation of Israel. They were pitiful by all measures compared to you. They didn't even know of Jesus of Nazareth. They could only see him obscurely, and only a couple of them that were prophets. You live in a nation that is greater than Israel ever was. You are so blessed. So these two verses are going to seem a little insignificant, but for Israel they were great, because it was two of the greatest events of God blessing them. Verse 4, For I brought thee up out of the land of Egypt, and redeemed thee out of the house of servants, and I sent before thee Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, what have I done wrong? Testify against me. Don't you remember that you were once servants, bondmen in the land of Egypt? And Pharaoh and his taskmasters made you build their tombs and their cities and their pyramids. And when you complained that the amount that you were supposed to build every day was too much, they took away your building materials and said, keep up the the quota. Don't you remember that? You were crying every day to me. You were sighing every day to me. And I sent Moses and Aaron and Miriam to take care of you. I sent the world's greatest legislator, Moses. I sent a a leader who had already proved in 40 years that he was a champion, even in the eyes of Egypt. The Bible tells us that he was mighty in word and deed at the age of 40. At the age of 40, he was a fair-haired son of Pharaoh through his daughter. He was mighty. He had no qualms about taking out an Egyptian when he chanced upon him fighting with an Israelite. I sent you, Moses, a great leader and a great legislator. I sent you a high priest, Aaron, to take care of your relationship with me. And I sent the prophetess Miriam so that you could know the will of God. And even the females in your nation would have a representative. I sent a family that I had handpicked and prepared, Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, to deliver you out of the land of Egypt. What else did you want me to do for you? Why are you wearied in worshiping me? If you got up this morning and didn't want to come to church, the Lord has a controversy with you. He's going to plead his case. And if you wonder why the Lord blows against you in certain areas of your life, I don't care if he blows with you in some areas. If he blows against you in some areas... You shouldn't wonder why. You should go to the Word of God, and I should go to the Word of God, and we both together must humble ourselves there and find out where we are wanting. Because what else could the Lord have done for us? He's done everything for us. Verse 5, Oh, my people, look at the Lord pleading with us, with them. 
Oh, my people, remember. And this is what we need to do, is to remember all that God's done for us. And that's why four sermons on 12 verses of Romans 8. Oh, my people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, consulted. And what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him from Shittim unto Gilgal, that ye may know the righteousness of the Lord. Did I take care of you in the matter of the king of Moab? The king of Moab's name was Balak, and he hired a prophet named Balaam, a devilish prophet. But that prophet, operating by the power of the devil, was able to prophesy some true things on occasion. And Balak hired him. But when Balak consulted with him and said, curse Israel, the God of heaven took over that man. And the God of heaven had Balaam bless Israel repeatedly. Great and glorious blessings. The God of heaven took over Balaam's transportation. So that the two of them had a conversation on the way to work one day. The Lord took care of Israel in the matter of Balak and Balaam. When Balaam realized that he was not going to be able to curse Israel, he gave this advice to Balak. The way to destroy God's people is to send immodestly clothed girls and women into camp and debauch the Israelites through whoredom. Things haven't changed very much, have they? The devil still tries to do that. And so in came loose, immodest women into the camp of Israel, and the Lord killed 24,000 at Shittim because of it. That's when Phinehas proved what a righteous man he was by making shish kebab of one of those couples who were shaking a tent in the face of all Israel. The Lord should have wiped them all out, but he was merciful. And those women came in and caused them problems all the way from Shittim to Gilgal. But do you know where Gilgal is? It's on the other side of the Jordan River from Moab. The Lord brought them all the way. He preserved them alive and he kept them safe from the greatest threat that there is to men on most occasions. And that is women set out to design, setting out to ruin you. What more could I have done for you? The Lord wants to know. I took care of you against all the wiles of Balaam and what he did for Balak. So we say again in verse 3, now we understand the whole pleading of the case. O my people, what have I done unto thee? I delivered you out of Egypt. You were servants, and I've made you kings of Canaan. Credible. You didn't know what you were going to do with Balaam. Because you knew that that man had prophesied things that had come true. And when he was up there on that mountain and you knew that he was going to curse you, you did not know what was going to happen. But I turned his curse into a blessing. And I delivered you from his wild women of the the Moabites. And I got you across the Jordan River into Gilgal, where you renewed your covenant with me and we took the land of Canaan. Do you remember? Oh, my people, what have I done unto thee? And wherein have I wearied thee? Testify. Testify against me. So then the prophet takes up questions that would naturally arise to those that weren't really ready to submit themselves by repentance to do the will of God. They look to ceremonial religion. And so the prophet asks a few questions. Let me read verses 6 through 9. Wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? 
Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. The Lord's voice crieth unto the city, and the man of wisdom shall see thy name. Hear ye the rod, and who hath appointed it? The prophet raises questions that come up by scorners who do not want to submit to God. These are not people fully repentant, led by the Spirit of God, because they wouldn't have asked questions like this. The children of Israel knew that they didn't have to offer their firstborn to make peace with God. This is the prophet asking these questions to head off the questions of the scornful nation that didn't want to repent. He has pleaded his case with them for five verses. Now for two verses, he makes up their arguments that they think the religion of God is ceremonial, that they think the religion of God is too hard and too expensive. And he shows them that it wasn't at all. How shall I come before this Lord that has a controversy with me? Shall I come before this high God with burnt offerings and with calves of a year old? The Lord doesn't care about that ceremonial worship as much as he cares about something far more important. And that's how you're living. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? See, these people would keep up the sacrifices of God. Isaiah 58 told you that if you read it last night. Remember, he was a contemporary of Micah. These people would keep up the outward ceremonial worship of God. They'd wander into church on Sunday. They'd bring their Bibles and they'd sit there and warm about 20 inches of foam rubber. That's not what the Lord was looking for. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? The prophet is asking for, on the behalf of scorners. What do you think God wants? Your firstborn child? He hasn't asked for anything like that. And oh man, you already know what he wants. Don't try to excuse yourself or divert or avoid the Lord pleading his controversy. The Lord wants your heart and your life. And that's what we have in verse 8. He hath showed thee, O man, what is good. Stop asking such questions and don't be so deluded. He is not interested in your sacrifices. He's interested in your obedience. And he's already showed it to you. He showed it in the days of King Saul. When King Saul did not kill all the Amalekites. And the Lord told him to obey is better than sacrifice. He already had taught this lesson in almost the same words in Deuteronomy 10.12. When the Lord said, and now Israel... What doth the Lord thy God require of thee? Does it sound familiar? Does it sound like he had already taught them what the Lord wanted? And now Israel, what doth the Lord thy God require of thee? But to fear the Lord thy God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, and to serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul. See, he already taught that. Hosea chapter 6 and verse 6. He had already taught them that to obey is better than sacrifice. To show mercy is better than sacrifice. 
He had taught them. But they were justifying themselves and saying there shouldn't be a controversy. We're bringing our sacrifices. How much more do you want us to bring? Is there, is there anything in your wicked nature that rises up like that, that you're doing a pretty good job? And why does somebody keep picking on you from the Word of God? The Lord has a controversy and He's pleading with His people. And He's saying, I don't even want your sacrifices. That isn't the issue. The issue is your heart and your life. And He is speaking to all of us. Verse 9. The Lord's voice crieth unto the city. It wasn't Micah's voice. This was Samaria. This was Jerusalem. This was the Lord through Micah. The Lord's voice crieth unto the city. He is pleading his case. He is pleading his controversy against Israel and Judah. And the man of wisdom shall see thy name. Many are called, but few are chosen. There are a few men of wisdom. And in these days and in these times, there were precious few of them. Men of wisdom who heard the word of Micah who realized that God in his controversy was absolutely righteous and they were wrong, and who knew that that message was from heaven. If you read Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, you will find that the vast majority of the nation didn't care what the prophets said. They didn't care what Isaiah, Jeremiah, or Ezekiel, or these minor prophets had to say. We will not hear. We will have peace. We'll go down to Egypt and get Pharaoh to help us. Nebuchadnezzar won't be able to destroy us. They wouldn't hear. But there is in every group of the people of God some men of wisdom. And I wonder how many men, women, and young people of wisdom are in this church. I hope to God that I would be one. I hope to God those of you with sincere hearts would be one. This verse 9, the Lord's voice crieth unto the city. Did the city of Samaria and Jerusalem repent at the preaching of Micah? No. The Lord's going to come and destroy them. This is just prior to Shalmaneser, king of the Assyrians, taking all of Israel, the ten tribes, captive. The Lord's voice crieth unto the city, and the man of wisdom shall see thy name. There are men that are spiritually wise that have humbled themselves before God, they have eyes to see, they have ears to hear, and they have tender and soft hearts that are convicted by the preaching of God's Word. This is not my reasoning with you. This is God's reasoning with you and with me. The man of wisdom shall see thy name. He will hear this message. He will hear the pleadings. And he will know it is from God. He will see the name and hand and stamp of God upon the message and know that it's from heaven and he'll submit himself to it. Micah goes on to say, hear ye the rod. Hear ye what's about to come on this nation. I'm going to tell you about the judgments that God's going to bring by his rod. The rod being the instrument of applying punishment and chastisement to animals or to children. Please don't take that last sentence and send it to DSS. I don't really care if you do. But the rod in the Bible was to get discipline into both animals and children. Does the Bible... Now I'm on a rabbit trail, so let's go for it. Proverbs chapter 26. A whip for the horse, a bridle for the ass, and a rod for the fool's back. They're all in the same category. If you don't like it, lump it. 
It's the truth of God's word. Hear ye the rod. I'm going to now tell you what the rod's going to bring upon Israel and Judah. Hear it. Because here comes my chastening. And you're also going to hear who hath appointed it because it's the Lord God. The God of heaven, the Lord, the Lord, L-O-R-D caps, is reasoning with Israel and he's bringing his judgments. And those judgments, let me read verses 10 through 15. Are there yet the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is abominable? Shall I count them pure with the wicked balances and with the bag of deceitful weights? For the rich men thereof are full of violence, and the inhabitants thereof have spoken lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Therefore also will I make thee sick in smiting thee, in making thee desolate because of thy sins. Thou shalt eat, but not be satisfied, and thy casting down shall be in the midst of thee, and thou shalt take hold, but shalt not deliver. And that which thou deliverest will I give up to the sword." Thou shalt sow, but thou shalt not reap. Thou shalt tread the olives, but thou shalt not anoint thee with oil. And sweet wine, but shalt not drink wine. This is the word of the Lord. Hear ye the rod. The rod is a metonym. You can't hear a rod because a rod doesn't talk. A metonym is where the cause of a thing is put for the effect of that thing, or the effect of a thing is put for the cause of it. Here it's the cause, it's the rod that's coming, but what's speaking is Micah enunciating and pronouncing God's judgments and chastisements upon them. And so he asks, here, here let's get started. Verse 10, are there yet the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked? Do you still have a nation that has applied its wicked designs to accumulate wealth? Is that still true of you Samaritans and you Jews in Jerusalem? Are you still making the, the gain of money the most important part of your life? And you're doing it by wickedness. And the scant measure that is abominable to me. I, the Lord God, am pleading with a controversy against you because I hate scant measures. What is a scant measure? It is a yardstick that is only 34 inches long. It's a gasoline pump that pumps 125 fluid ounces instead of 128. It's a gallon of milk that's got 126 ounces of 2% milk fat when you're selling 3.25% milk fat. I hate scant measures. I want to tell you about the God of heaven. He is so practical, it is not hard to figure out his religion. He doesn't care if you bring 10,000 rivers of oil. He doesn't care if you've got the Mississippi flowing out of your house into the temple of Jerusalem with olive oil. He doesn't care if you bring your firstborn, because that isn't what he's looking for. You know, to offer your firstborn is easier than to do what he asks for. But when your heart is right, what he asks for is simple. Right. He wants you to use a 36-inch yardstick. He wants you to use a 128-fluid-ounce gas pump. No cheating. No scant measure. Are you with me? Understand the word of the Lord. This is the sense. You cheaters... You wicked cheaters trying to get ahead by cheating economically, financially, professionally. Oh, I'll be back to this before this day's over. We're, the Lord's going to plead with us with a little more specific terms, but I want to tell you, He cares about how you go to work every day. 
He cares about how you fill out your tax return. He cares about how you type out your resume. He cares about everything you do in your life. And right now, he's dealing with the economic, financial parts of your life. How do you handle your money? Do you cheat at all to get ahead? Do you ever shortchange anyone? Do you ever pay late when you should pay on time? Do you cheat and use that grace period? I know you're sick of me harping on that grace period. That's a scant payment of your debts. When you have a bill arrive, pay it. It's called a grace period because they're gracious and not throwing you into prison. Because you are past the due date. The due date has been calculated that they will accept payments on the due date and they will survive. But if everyone were to pay past the due date, they would be in serious trouble because you're stealing cash flow from them. And anyone who's in business knows it, don't you? And you know those men in business pay differently. Because men in business understand cash flow and the need for it. This is the word of God. The scant measure is a 34-inch yardstick. Verse 11. This is the Lord. Listen to him plead. Shall I count them pure with the wicked balances and with the bag of deceitful weights? Should I count... He's pleading. Should I count you people as, as good Christian people because you come to my temple and you bring sacrifices... But even though you've got a scale that you use for measuring out your gold in your little banking operation, and it's a wicked balance, it is set up to cheat. And you've got a little bag on one side of you, the right-hand side are honest weights for your friends, and the left-hand side is a bag of deceitful weights. They're illegal. They've only got 15 ounces to the pound because you're cheating. Shall I count you as being righteous because you come into my house and because you give sacrifices, but this is the way you're living? The Lord's pleading with all of us. We need to ransack our lives today, and I'm going to help you do it. We need to ransack our lives to find out where we might be cheating the Lord because he's got a controversy with us and he's pleading his case. What more could he have done for us to get a 16-ounce pound out of us? Is that simple? What more could he have done for us that we would give a 60-minute hour when we're on the job? Or are you pretty good at giving a 45-minute hour? If you give a 45-minute hour, you're stealing 15 minutes from your master. If you're stealing 15 minutes from your master, you are a scant worker, and the Lord has a controversy with you, and he doesn't care about you coming to church on Sunday. Verse 12, For the rich men thereof are full of violence. And the inhabitants thereof have spoken lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouths. You have a nation of liars and deceivers and wicked men who have got their hands on riches through violence. They have taken advantage of widows. They have taken advantage of orphans. They have taken advantage of those that could not defend themselves. They've run right over them and heaped up their riches through violence. There's so many other verses we could turn to, but you've got the point, and that's good enough for us today. Let's just keep right on going. Verse 13, hear ye the rod. Now we're going to hear the rod speaking. We're going to hear about the chastisements and punishments God's going to bring. Therefore, because you live like this, because you cheat in your measures, your balances, and your scales, because you lie and you, you perform violence against those who are weak under your control, therefore also will I make thee sick in smiting thee, in making thee desolate because of thy sins. I'm going to so destroy you and take away your cities 
and your houses and your buildings that no inhabitant is going to want to live there. I'm going to leave you in desolation. But in the process of doing that, I'm going to make you sick from the inside out. And if you go read Deuteronomy 28 and Deuteronomy 32, you can actually read prophecies where God said that just to punish them outwardly would not be enough. He's going to give them the terror on the inside. He's going to fill them with anguish on the inside. Because the Lord wants everything. And you know what? He is righteous and he deserves everything. Do you know how he's righteous? Because he's treated us so well and he treated them so well that they owed him everything. And it was a very fair, no it wasn't. It was a very merciful exchange. A very gracious exchange. Verse 14, thou shalt eat but not be satisfied. You're going to be rationing food because there's going to be a siege. You're going to eat. You'll have your little piece of bread given to you. But you won't be satisfied like when you could have two peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Now you're just going to get a piece of bread. Thou shalt eat but not be satisfied, and thy casting down shall be in the midst of thee. And thou shalt take hold but shalt not deliver, and that which thou deliverest will I give up to the sword. This battle that I'm going to send, when I bring the Assyrians into Israel, and when I bring the Babylonians into Judah and into Jerusalem, it's not going to be a battle afar off. They're going to surround your cities and come right into your city streets. It's going to be fought in your street, in your front yard, in your house. The casting down of your nation is going to be within thee. It's going to be right in front of you. It's going to be all around you. And when you grab your stuff to try to save it, or you grab your children to try to save them, you're going to think that you've delivered them, but I'm going to give them up to the sword. You will not escape. This is the word of the Lord. This is, hear ye the rod. Is he unrighteous to punish them so severely? He is not unrighteous. They had turned against so many blessings. How much do we owe our God? Is he righteous to punish us for only being 90% Christians? Indeed he is. When we give him 100%, he's already told us what we should say. We have done that which was our duty to do. We are unprofitable servants if we do 100%. If we do all that he's commanded us, that's Luke 17.10, by the way. You're not going to get away. Verse 15, thou shalt sow, but thou shalt not reap. Thou shalt tread the olives, but thou shalt not anoint thee with oil. And sweet wine, but shalt not drink wine. Let me point out that there's quite an ellipsis in that last clause, isn't there? And sweet wine, but shalt not drink wine. There's no verb there explaining what it means when it says, and sweet wine. That's because it's taken from the second clause where it says, Thou shalt tread the olives. Thou shalt also tread the wine press of the sweet wine, but there's not going to be any wine to drink. Do you know why? Because your captors are going to be eating and drinking and anointing themselves with all of it. Do you know how... Listen, farming is a laborious, capital-intensive business. You have to put up lots of money and lots of labor before you get the product. And you've got to wait a long time for it. You've got to wait all year. But do you know what it's like to do all that planting and to do all that waiting and invest that seed into the ground? Bury it. You bury your assets in farming. You bury your assets in the ground, then you wait. And then when it grows up, when do you think an enemy wants to attack? In the time you're planting or in the time that you're reaping? 
Because they're the ones that eat your food. They're the ones that anoint themselves with your oil and they drink your wine. While you're standing there in chains, they're drinking your wine and tossing out the last half of the glass because they don't care because you were the one that put all the capital and labor into it. Do you know how painful that is? See, we haven't been in war like that. We don't really know, but the Bible tells us about it. And this verse right here is telling us, you're going to sow, but someone else is going to eat it. And there's so many cross-references we could go to to back up what it's saying here and what the intent is, because all these many of the prophets spoke about the same events. The overthrow of Israel by the Assyrians and the overthrow of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. So there we have the rod speaking. Verse 16, his controversy includes their religion. They brought some pagan traditions from false religion. For the statutes of Omri are kept... And all the works of the house of Ahab, and ye walk in their counsels, that I should make thee a desolation, and the inhabitants thereof an hissing. Therefore ye shall bear the reproach of my people. My people are going to fall into the hands of the living God, and you are going to bear my reproach. I'm going to bring my punishments upon you, and you're going to be a disgrace, and a proverb, and a byword, and a hissing to other people. They're going to see you and hiss at you. Because they're going to look at that temple and make fun of it. Let me read to you an example of it. Lamentations chapter 2. Lamentations 2, 15. All that pass by, clap their hands at thee. Talking about Jerusalem. All that pass by, clap their hands at thee. They hiss and wag their head at the daughter of Jerusalem, saying, Is this the city that men call the perfection of beauty, the joy of the whole earth? What a reproach. Jerusalem had been the joy of the whole earth. Jerusalem had been the beautiful city. But now men are clapping. Look at that. What a disgraceful place. They're all captive in Babylon. You'll bear the reproach of my people. Because he had promised them he would scatter them in the nations if they disobeyed him. Let's go back to the first half of verse 16. The statutes of Omri. Omri was one of the great wicked was one of the greatest, most greatest wicked kings. One of the wickedest kings of Israel. And his son was Ahab. First of all, Omri and Ahab. What were their ways? What were their statutes? They kept going the the worship of two golden calves that had been set up by Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. One in Bethel, one in Dan. When Jeroboam took the ten tribes away from Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, he said, now listen, folks, because there's a division in the nation now, we can't go worship in Jerusalem anymore. So we're going to start our own religion. So we're going to have it in Bethel and we're going to have it in Dan. We're going to have a golden calf in each place. And so he set up priests from the basest of men to run this religion of calf worship. Omri built the city of Samaria. He bought the hill of Samaria and he built the capital city of Israel. And he instituted and confirmed, he did not institute, he confirmed and exalted and defended and promoted the calf worship of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And this is stated as, through the Old Testament history. They departed not from the sin of Jeroboam, who led Israel astray in false religion. That's about 15 times in the Old Testament. Because God hated that calf worship, and he hated them thinking that they could worship not coming to Jerusalem. Omri exalted that by putting it in the royal city of Samaria that he built. Then along came his son Ahab. Not only did Ahab keep the calf worship going, but Ahab also added to that the worship of Baal, because his wife Jezebel had a father's name of 
Ethbaal. They were committed to the Baal religion. And so Ahab and Jezebel worshipped Baal along with the golden calves, and they cut off the prophets of the Lord and killed them. And they stole property like Naboth's vineyard by lying and killing that innocent man. Examples of their statutes and their ways. And see, these people here were accumulating riches by wickedness, by violence. Are, are you with me? By violence because they're following the example of Ahab, the wicked king of Israel. That's verse 16. That's enough for you to understand those. Let's come back to verse 8. Let's introduce what verse 8 is going to tell us. And we'll take a break and come back and see if verse 8 doesn't hit us pretty hard. Verse 8. The Lord has a controversy with his people and he pleads his case. And listen, if he... If he pleads his case with us, look what he's done for us. He's done more than he did for them. Right. He hasn't taken us out of Egypt. He's delivered us from the wrath to come. Amen. Praise the Lord, that's a whole lot better. Yes. He hasn't just overthrown the council of Balaam. He's overthrown the Roman Catholic Church in the case of some of you by saving you out of it. Amen. He's overthrown the Lutheran Church for others by saving you out of it. He has overthrown a lot of counsel against you by saving you out of those false religions. He has done so much for us. He's put us in this great land. He's given us this church. He's given us the King James Bible in our own tongue. We are blessed indeed. He pleads his case with us. What have I done to weary you? Why are you bored about coming to church today? Why are you dozing and sleeping right now? He pleads his case. He wants to know. Testify against me. The Lord says... He hath showed thee, O man, what is good. This is pure religion. This is Christianity. This is God's religion. This is the religion of Jehovah. It is good. He's going to show you the good religion of worshiping Him that He finds fully acceptable. He hath showed thee, O man, what is good. I've already quoted those verses, Deuteronomy 10, 12, 1 Samuel 15, 22, Hosea 6, 6. They all taught that before we even got here. What God wanted was their heart and their soul. Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God, keep his commandments, and love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul, and strength. To obey is better than sacrifice. I don't want your outward worship. I don't want your attendance. I want your obedience. He hath showed thee, O man, what is good. I know this is a, a life verse and a favorite verse for some men. And I would say if this is a favorite verse for some man, he's one of the men of wisdom of verse 9. Right. Because to make this a life verse is a wonderful thing. What doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God? Amen. Three things, three bodies, three categories that are going to cover most of your life. Moses came down from Mount Sinai with two tables. They had ten commandments on them. Four of those commandments deal between you and God. Six of those commandments deal between you and others. The Lord's going to get you right here with the same thing. He hasn't brought up anything new. To do justly is treating others right and fair. To love mercy is to be generous, forgiving, and compassionate, even when they've wronged you. To walk humbly with your God is that other table. It's to want to walk with God and have a personal relationship with Him where you delight in Him and humble yourself before Him and are contrite and tremble before His Word. That's all. That's all He requires of us. He wants us to do justly to others, to love mercy in taking care of others and in forgiving them, 
and to have a personal relationship with Him and to delight in Him by walking with Him in a humble way. We'll take that up when we come back. I have just a few cross-references for those three categories of whether we're doing justly in our lives, whether we're loving mercy, and whether we're walking humbly with our God. And may the Lord help us to hear the controversy, to hear His pleadings, and to say the Lord is righteous. The Lord is righteous. I am unrighteous. I am undone. I'm the one that hasn't fulfilled my part of the deal. The Lord's done all and more. I should be giving Him more. Lord, forgive me. That should be our response. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word.